0: Good morning, no pressure. <laughs> um, all the six and others get to stay here. You're almost with me, some of you. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Joe Trollin. I'm the youth director here at CAS, as Arnie said. And it gives me tremendous pleasure to share God's word with you this morning. Um, and might I add, as some have already said, happy Father's Day. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads, all the grandpas, all the brothers, maybe all the soon-to-be dads you turn me down just a little bit? And uh, happy Father's Day to all the father-like figures that are here, and to those that might listen to this online at some point. Um, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22. I know we've been in Hebrews for a long time, looking forward to Lani getting us through the rest of that faithfully. But we'll be in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, primarily this morning. And if you open your text, you probably notice it's in red. I'll be reading the words of Jesus this morning. My my sermon this morning is titled, No Righteousness, No Jesus, Big Problems. More on that in a moment. But first, let's read what's in front of us here. Let's read this incredible story, this parable, together. Starting in verse 1, Matthew records for us this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are glorious, as we sang just a few moments ago. And we ask that you would limit distractions from me and others in this place as we read your word, as we study and dive deep into this story that your son brilliantly weaves for us. I ask that we might see, and have eyes to see and ears to listen to Jesus this morning, that we might see our need for him, our desperate need for him through this story. Be with us now as we study this. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. When I was growing up, like some of you I'm sure, I was exposed to lots of different types of music. My earthly father's no longer here, but when he was alive, we listened to two genres of music in his car, just two, rock and roll and R&B. That was all my father listened to. When I was in mom's car, it was mostly country music, but also some oldies. My mom, to this day, loves the oldies in that station. Um, And we listened to the real country music, but also the more pop version that we've all come accustomed to. I think there's a difference, amen? There's a slight difference. It's okay, my mom liked it all. My best friend, uh, he shared with me Christian music. I'm thankful for that. One of the first groups we listened to, I get to see again this summer at Kingdom Bound, Skillet. One of the first groups I ever heard. John Cooper's still rocking. And I discovered classical music and film music all by myself. And it's only by God's grace, I can't describe it any other way. By God's grace, I found this thing over here, this firewood the cello, the greatest instrument on earth. Um, Sorry, worship team, don't hold that against me. (laughs) That might be biased. That last one's a little biased. Okay. Um, I love the cello. I love hearing it. Um, But while I was driving in the car as a young person, there was a song that played a lot, a country song, when I was in the car with my mother. Um, I would have been about nine years old. I'm dating myself now. When this song came out in the early 2000s. It was the title track of Kenny Chesney's 2002 album. It was on the radio all the time. Some of you probably heard it. It was called, No Shoes, No Shirt, No Problems, right? In some ways, I suppose that song's a dad song. Um, I look back, though, I'm not mystified why that song is so popular with American listeners. Our culture loved that song, and here's why. Because it has a very carefree attitude. It has a very beach fun vibe to it, but that song is about ditching your problems. There are no problems, right? We don't see them. It's about escape. As someone who loves going to the movies, I was just there yesterday, I understand the idea of escapism. But this song is all about bottomless drinks and bare feet. No shoes, no shirt, no problems. However, that is not what we just read here from Jesus not at all what we just read here. This parable, it's told to us by Jesus, and it's the third installment in a series of rebukes towards the Jewish leaders. As I often tell my youth students when they're with me, seventh grade through twelfth, context is king. It's not everything, but we have to know context. Every time we read scripture, we should know who the target audience was. Reading the Bible is not like any other book because it's not like any other book. And unless you know who's being talked to first, how are we ever going to fully know what God is trying to say to us today? So let me give you some context, because we've been in Hebrews for a while. Matthew 22, prior to this story being told, we're in Holy Week here. Jesus has already been welcomed in to Jerusalem. He's ridden in on his donkey, palm branches were laid out. People are crying out, What? Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, Jesus, rescue us. He's already flipped over some tables. He's already made a mess in the temple and cleansed the temple, actually, by driving out the money exchangers. That has already happened. And most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely this very story that we read was shared on the Tuesday of Holy Week, just three days before Jesus would be killed. Context. That's where this story takes place. And what Jesus is doing is he's teaching in the temples. He's acting like a priest. He's forgiving people. He's doing the work of the chief elders and priests, and they're not happy, not at all. They've had it up to here with Jesus. they have been trying to trip him up with his words all along, but he won't budge. And now he's doing their job. So in the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 23, he asks, the, the religious leaders ask Jesus, what's the deal, what gives? Why are you opening your mouth on our turf? They ask, whose authority do you have to say these things? They want one good reason why they should let Jesus continue. And how does Jesus respond? With attitude? With ego, like some of us might? With a snarky retort, pithy comeback? No, not our Jesus. In his way, it's always his way, what does he do? He says, let me share with you a story. Actually, let me share with you three. And he shares with them three parables in response. The first one is the parable of the two sons, and the parable of the tenant farmers, And then this third and final one, the trifecta, the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it will be given to a people producing its fruits, key phrase there. That's verse 43 of chapter 21, by the way. This judgment, this warning is then illustrated in this parable in front of us, masterfully. Masterfully. Notice in verse 7, Jesus is also prophesying a little bit here. If you look at verse 7, the Jewish leaders are going to reject Jesus in just a few days' time. They think they're going to finally silence this man once and for all. How little they know. The Messiah would be rejected, which would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's going to happen, which would in turn lead to the dispersion of the Jewish people throughout Rome. All this is coming. But Jesus is also trying to say some things to these men and us. You see, the original invited guests, who do they represent? They represent the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the very men he's talking to. And they also represent the Jews, God's chosen people. He depicts, Jesus depicts the nation of Israel as the guests that were invited the first time around. But many of them have lost their place at the feast. They have Declined the invitation. Which leads me to a question. Have you received an invitation lately? If you're listening to this online, you won't be able to respond to me, but for those in the room, show of hands, who has received an invitation lately in here? I have. A lot of you. I was just invited to a birthday party yesterday. My best friend's son turned three. I bought him little lacrosse sticks and a net, trying to make a lacrosse player out of him. We'll see how successful I am. His father's a basketball player, so we'll see. Um, I was invited to a friend's birthday even on the 8th this month. He joined the 30 Club with me. I got invited to that somehow. Um, maybe you've been invited to a birthday party. Maybe some of you are planning grad parties. I know I've got a couple of high school seniors this year with my group. Maybe some of you have already been to a graduation party or you're preparing to be at one. And for others, maybe you've been invited to a wedding. Maybe you've got someone in your family that's going to be married this summer. I know a few of you have already probably been to a wedding at this point. We are in wedding season after all. And wedding season is interesting. Uh, I can testify this to you this morning. I've never been married, but I've been in several weddings. I've been lucky enough to be in a few of my best friend's weddings, and I've been to several family members' weddings. I played cello at a couple of weddings, which is a great gig. Uh, Free food's always nice. Um, I remember one wedding I played They had lobster bisque, fresh from Maine. That was better than any check I could have got. Um, Once in a while, that's nice. But wedding invitations can be stressful. This is what I hear, right? Because you have to figure out who's going to go, who's going to stay, who sits with whom, where does Uncle Bob go, no one likes to be with him, where does this person go, right? It's like stressful. There's so much trauma trying to figure out who makes the list and who doesn't. And none of us want to be the one uninvited to something important like that. None of us want to be that person. And it's nothing more depressing than when you send invitations out to people and you want a certain person or a certain group to be there for this thing, whatever it is, and they don't show, they don't come. Or they have an excuse, they come late. Websites today suggest that 15 to 20% of invitees will decline the invitation. That's almost a quarter. That's fascinating to me. So when you and I, when we send out invitations to anything, birthday party, a dinner, maybe we invite someone to church, we should expect 20% of them to either blow us off or not come at all. That's fascinating to me. In the world that we live today, that's so connected. And in the story Jesus weaves here, something similar happens, doesn't it? The king sends out an invitation, this fictional king, because he wants to celebrate a wedding. Not just any wedding, the wedding of his son. But nobody responds. Nobody comes. But this king, he's persistent. He doesn't give up. Read with me again verse 4. He says in verse 4, Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, And everything is ready. Please come to the wedding feast. I've never had oxen before, but it's Father's Day. Men in this room, you can imagine this to me, a nice, juicy, medium-rare steak on the table. Or maybe, I know this is sad for some of us, you know, baby cow, but, oh, it cuts like butter. A calf would be so delicious. And there's some time urgency here. I don't know about you, but I don't leave my meat out to sit all day. Eventually it'll spoil. Eventually it'll get cold. There's some urgency baked into this statement. He says, come to the wedding feast. Everything is ready. The table's set. Just come. But what response does he get in verse 5? Does it change? Verse 5, but they paid no attention, and they went off. They go off and do their own thing. Boy, doesn't that sound like us today. You do you, I'll do me. You believe what you want to believe. I'm too busy. They go off to work, to their places of business, to their home, Our schedule's too tight. Sorry, we can't make it. They paid no attention to the king. And actually in verse 5, the response is actually worse, isn't it? Because it doesn't end there. Now violence is being committed in the kingdom. People are being murdered. People are being killed. And as we read in verse 7, the king is not happy. He's furious. And I think he has a right to be. We read this, his response, and it sounds harsh to us, but... This king is a just king. He's not going to let this continue. In verse 7, what does he do? In verse 8, he moves quickly to stop the murderers, bring them to justice. He restores order, even if it means burning some of his kingdom down, which sounds harsh to us as we read this. And then the king sends his servants to invite anybody, everybody, anyone they can find. The servants do just that. And Matthew notes in verse 10, another key verse, if you see verse 10, the invited guests, they are a motley crew, aren't they? Verse 10 tells us they're made up of both bad and good. People that wouldn't normally ever be together are somehow united here. Verse 10 is key. Then the king finds a man at the feast, and he's not wearing his wedding garment. This guest is without the proper attire attire that the king has supplied. He would have supplied it. And so this guy is underdressed for the occasion, which brings me to weddings. Weddings back then and weddings today, we have to keep in mind, aren't exactly the same thing. They both are supposed to foreshadow something beautiful, but weddings back then took a lot longer. Um, This is nothing against our weddings today, but they're mostly a one-day affair for you and I when we attend, right? It's mostly a one-day thing. I know the bridesmaids they have their day and the groomsmen have their little day together their adventure i remember when my best friend got married we went we went uh what was it we went sky not skydiving i would never have done that we went uh zip lining we went zip lining there in chestnut ridge which was still terrifying for me i, I don't like being on the air i like being on the ground unless it's a water slide um you know there's a rehearsal dinner right there's so much scheduling that has to happen you got to. Make the cake, you got to get the venue, book all these things. But for us, like regular folks to just attend, it's a one-day thing, right? We come, we see the two married, and later that night there's a reception. There's free food, there's dance. That's it. Not in Jesus' day. There was no Facebook event creation. There was no mailing system. You couldn't send out RSVPs. And weddings lasted like a week. The wedding was consummated, and then there was a week of partying, a week of feasting, which, as the Italian up here, that sounds so good. For a week, they're talking to family members, meeting each other, and it's a huge celebration. It's a big deal. And you better believe back then, if a royal wedding took place, it was a really big deal. I think I read somewhere this week, the most viewed wedding, I think, in history has been Princess Diana's wedding. Something like 700 or 740 million people watched that wedding. But royal weddings back then were a big deal. And the king would have supplied everything. Jesus knows this as he tells the story. The men he's talking to originally know this. The king would have supplied everything. The table they sat at, the food, the venue, and yes, even the clothes, what they're going to wear. But this guest doesn't have that on. Imagine with me that you're invited to a wedding this summer. Or if you are coming to one this summer, this will be easy for you. Imagine you're invited to a formal wedding, okay? Maybe the RSVP tells you that much. Or maybe when you text or call the person back, say, I'm coming, they say, hey, just so you know, the bridesmaids are wearing such and such a color. This is what people are going to be wearing. It's communicated ahead of time. Imagine that we all go to this wedding, and there you are, and you show up to this formal wedding, and men are dressed to the nines. They're in nice long ties, maybe a suit coat or a tux, Pants. Nice dress shoes. Maybe women are looking fabulous in dresses and blouses, looking gorgeous. And then here comes you. And you jump into the wedding, and you're in flip-flops. You're in a shirt like what Arnie's wearing back there, a nice Hawaiian T-shirt. Maybe you've got a bucket hat on and your swim trunks. Are you underdressed for this wedding? Yeah, I think you are. Do you think somebody's going to notice across the way you and the flip-flops and the Hawaiian tea? I think they would. Do you think the bride or the groom might spot you at their reception as they're on the dance floor? Do you think they'll see you? They might. And what do you think about the groom's father, maybe, who's hosting this wedding? Do you think he is going to notice you? Do you think you'd feel ashamed, embarrassed, Maybe some of us in our families, that would be the dress attire, but if this was a formal wedding, you would feel out of place, wouldn't you? You'd probably want to turn around and leave. This guest doesn't get that option. He has offended the king. If we showed up to a wedding in flip-flops and Hawaiian tea, we would offend our hosts. We would not realize the significance of the event. We have been oblivious to it. And that's exactly what this guy is here. This guest is oblivious. And it's another key part of the story Jesus tells. Look at verse 12. What does this man say in response? He shows up with the wrong clothes on, and what does he have to say for himself? What does he say? He says nothing. Verse 12 says he's speechless. What is he going to say? What excuse could he come up with? He is before the king, the man the most powerful in all the land. What is he going to do? He's got no excuse, no response. He's in the wrong. The king is right. He has told him ahead of time what to wear, what's required, and he didn't do it. And so he is shown the door, quite literally. He is tied up and thrown from this royal buffet. He's cast out into the cold, into the darkness. He's not allowed back in. The feast continues without him. And Jesus' parable ends on a dour note, doesn't it? From this parable, there's so much here. But I think Jesus really wants us to see three things, primarily. Youth that were with me last month, they've already heard the first one. They're ahead of the game. But now they get the rest of it. I want to leave you with three application points, or really three points of reflection on Father's Day to think about as you go off. Maybe some of you are eating steak and calves tonight. Maybe not. First one is this. I think Jesus wants us to know that The gates of the kingdom are open wide. The gates of the kingdom are open wide. Salvation, friends, is not based on ethnicity. It's not based on education. It's not based on your income, how much money you bring in. It's not based on how popular you are. It's not based on your ministry position, I need to hear that this morning, some others perhaps need to as well, it's not based on your personality type, how culturally savvy you are, how much stuff you own, it's not based on athletic ability, or in my case, lack thereof, unless it's lacrosse, and it's certainly not based on your attractiveness. All the things that our world values today, that's saying it's most important, chase these things. My young people are being told, chase this stuff. None of that matters in salvation, none of it. Everyone, every single one of you is invited to the Lord's table. The wedding feast, what does it symbolize? Jesus tells us, he doesn't hide that from us. It symbolizes heaven. He says this can be compared to a feast. That's what this is. That's what he's talking about. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle John, he's given a vision. He's in exile, but he gets to see a little glimpse of the feast to come. And so he writes this. He says, After this, I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture, he wheezes. John does his best to try to capture this for us in words. I'm sure he couldn't really figure out the perfect words, but this is what he gives us. What a celebration. We don't see this image today in our world. Not right now. However, as I pointed out to students last month, and this is challenging, this might ruffle a few feathers, but that's okay. I think we need to hear this, church. However, we should be very careful not to assume that the people most dressed for heaven are those who look most like us. We should be very careful not to assume that the people most dressed for heaven are those who look most like us. Hmm. Which leads us to reflection point number two. The gates of the kingdom are open very, very wide right now. But they won't always be. The kingdom still has gates, and we must enter through them. The kingdom still has gates, and we must enter through them. The kingdom imposes conditions on us. This is really key. Don't miss this this morning. There will be a dress code. There will be a dress code. Not literally. There will be a dress code. Some of you this morning, you understand the concept of a dress code because maybe you've played sports. You're all in the uniform, right? I went to public school like maybe many of you did. You more or less could wear whatever you wanted. I know I have students, and some of you might know people, that actually have a school uniform. They had a dress code. And I don't know if everyone can see this this morning, but I'm a cellist. I've played a cello for almost 20 years of my life, which seems like a crazy amount of time to play something. and be not very good at it. Um, and I play in an orchestra. I play with uh, the Amherst Symphony here in Western New York, one of, if not the oldest, volunteer community orchestras in the country. We have a season that goes from October to April. We're in off-season right now. We do have one summer concert coming up in uh, August at Isle Park. We play outside. That one's always really fun. Play a lot of show tunes and pop tunes and patriotic music. Uh, A conductor usually comes down in his kilt and his bagpipe. That's entertaining. But um, when we play from October to April, every Monday night I'm rehearsing for two and a half hours. We wear whatever we want. And it's amazing. Not everyone sees this, but I see it. It's a slight, small glimpse of heaven. Because I'm sitting there in my usually, like, jeans and a T-shirt, and there's just people all over. Old people, people younger than me, people that teach music for a living, some that, like me, do not. All different walks of life, all different backgrounds. We would never be together normally, never. And yet we're all here to play the same piece of music, and the conductor, he gives us the tempo. He gives us the beat, and we go to it. Our last concert in April, of many pieces that we played, we played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which was challenging for me. Some of you, if you're not classically trained, it's okay. You still know this tune.
1: Dun-dun-dun-dun.
0: Bum-bum-bum-bum. You all know that tune, right? Beethoven's Fifth. Hard piece of music. The back half is tough. And as we're rehearsing, we're wearing whatever we want, but then we came to the dress rehearsal that Sunday in April, the day of our concert, and there's a dress code. We're all expected to wear in that particular concert all black. So for me, that's black shirt, black pants, black shoes. Tie was optional. I left it out. I'm much more of a t shirt and shorts kind of guy, so I left the tie out. But everyone's to wear all black. The conductor told us this ahead of time. The general manager sent out emails about this. We were told. And I mean this with love, but I will pick on someone in my orchestra. For the day of the rehearsal, it's a true story. This happened just this past April new cellist in my section. I don't know why he sits behind me. He's better than me. He should be ahead of me. I should probably be in the back. But somehow he's behind me and he comes in and he's wearing a white shirt. He's the only one. And his stand partner, like me, I look back and I see the sweat on his face. And as he's looking across the stage, every single man and woman, conductors ready to take the stage in a few minutes, everyone's in all black but him. And his stand partner gave him a look and I could see his face now bright red. And uh, what could he do? He put his cello on stage. I watched him run backstage for his car keys, and he drove all the way home. I don't know where he lives. I'm told he lived kind of far. He went all the way home to get his black shirt. He missed the dress rehearsal, but he came back in time to eat with us. We're fed dinner, which is very nice of the orchestra. Do they feed us before we play? And so he came in, and as he took a seat at the table, all the cellos, we're a tight-knit group. All the cellos, we sit together. We're all friends. He comes and sits with us, and of course his stand partner and I couldn't resist. We said, nice shirt. (laughs) And he just gave us a little look and sat down and ate with us. And the concert went very well. There will be a dress code in heaven. Seeking a seat at the Lord's table will change you. It should. It should change what you're wearing. Not physically, but it should change your dress to a sense. Jesus puts it this way. We must bear its fruits. We have a particular kind of clothing to wear to this feast that is heaven, and it's given to you and I freely by God. In the words of Paul, we must do this. When we think about what are these fruits, Paul says in Colossians 3.12, he says, we must put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What a list must put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. A bitter, rude, or unforgiving heart has no place in heaven. Those are not the fruit of the Christian. It would be like wearing flip-flops to the wedding. We would be wedding crashers. Some of us enjoy that movie, but here, you would be a wedding crasher, just like the guest in this parable, and you will be left out of the feast. thirdly and i say this one for last on purpose we mustn't miss this sweet truth that jewish leaders had lost sight of this probably a long time ago in a few days time they were going to put jesus to death they didn't even recognize the son of god that's telling them this story they had lost sight of this third one and i hope i pray friends that we will not this last one's sweet the kingdom of god is a feast We should live like it. Kingdom of God is a feast. We should live like it. We should act like it. I don't know about you, but so often I look around here, and that's not what I'm seeing out there in the world. Many of us Christians aren't any different. We're complaining like everybody else in the world. We're chasing the same stuff. We come here on Sunday mornings. I've got students that come on Wednesday nights, and the rest of the week, they're back to what they've always been doing. A couple hours with me, a couple hours here, and Sunday will never be enough. It's not enough. All over Scripture, heaven is compared to a wedding. It's not like this is a new concept. Jesus doesn't, he could, but he doesn't make this up on the spot there in Holy Week. It's not like Jesus kind of pulls this out of the bag. No, no, Jesus knows his Father. The idea of a wedding, it goes all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis. And guess what? Jesus was there. He was there at the very beginning. He knows this is the perfect metaphor. So many of us, not just my teen students, but everybody, we're lost, we're confused in this world. There's so much noise, there's so much distraction. What do we chase? Who are we? What's my purpose? These are the questions we're asking ourselves, maybe even subconsciously. We were made for relationship friends. We were made for relationship with God primarily, but also, of course, with other people. The chief priests and elders had lost sight of that. They didn't see the kingdom as something to enjoy. Our God means to be enjoyed, and not just in eternity, which I know is so hard to fathom, but he's also meant to be enjoyed right here and right now. Even today, I'm June 18th, 2023. Our good, good father never leaves us or forsakes us. He pursues us like the king in this story. He is chasing after some of you right now, but we just can't see it. Our God is the God of laughter. He is the God of full bellies. And the Italian in me loves this one. The God that we serve, he is the God of second helpings. I love second and third helpings. I don't know about you, I'm from an Italian family. Our Christmas, we eat lasagna, and I have many pieces of it. My aunt makes little name cards, and everyone's got a spot at the table, and it's always a fight to see who can sit at the head table. One year of my life, I've been at the head table. It was was glorious. Now I'm back with the kids at the kid table, because I'm pretty much a kid anyway, but I'm a kid at heart anyway, I suppose. But our God is the God of second helpings. Revelation 19, John again. He says here in verse 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and exult and give him, God, the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus is the son in this story. Where are we? I've got young people that are always trying to figure out, I think, how is this relevant to us today? Where are we in this story who are we we're the bride you and i the church that's the wedding that god can't wait to celebrate let me give you one more verse isaiah 61 10. the prophet isaiah he writes this he says i will greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of, here's this word again, righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The question that remains before each of you, and I can't answer this question for you, the question that remains before each of us is this one. Are you properly dressed for the kingdom? Are you properly dressed for the kingdom? And by that I mean, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Because it's only when we trust in him that we are properly dressed for the eternal occasion that will be heaven. That's the only way. It's the only way we're going to be properly dressed for this occasion. What is the garment referenced here? I've watched and read and listened to so many theologians talk about this. What is this garment? What is it that we lack that we can't get without Christ? And our world doesn't want to see it. What is it? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. We don't get that by ourselves, friends. It's not like we can go out there into the streets of South Buffalo and just find righteousness lying around on the sidewalk and we pick it up and take it home. That's not how it works. Some of us think we're good enough, but you know what? We will never measure up. The stick God has, it's perfection, holiness. He is sovereign, He is glorious, as we sang earlier. You and I will never measure up. We'll be like my friend with the white shirt without Jesus. We cannot find righteousness on our own, but there's good news for us it's already been earned. You and I don't have to do anything. It's been earned by Jesus Christ on the cross when he died and shed his blood for you and me. That's good news. In Romans 13, 14, back to Paul here, Paul tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says, let's put on Christ. Paul uses that expression all the time. In Christ, it's all over the place. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died an excruciating death just after he told this story, by the way. And then three days later, he beat sin and death so that you and I could feast with God at his table. Mind blowing. This is incredibly good news for everyone here, even here on Father's Day. So the question is have you put your faith in Jesus? That's what's required of us a leap of faith. Do you believe this? You put your faith in Christ. You trust that God will fulfill all of his promises, and he's made us several because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has done for you. This is personal. I got a final thought before we close. Because so often as we read scripture, we know that we can't skip over things even the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, even the passages and words of Jesus that puzzle us. So i got one final thought before we close, because some of you might have noticed I skipped over the last verse. most challenging thing that Jesus has to say here. Jesus does not end his parable in verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Period. The end. That's not where he stops. Not our Jesus. He's got one final thought, one more zinger, one more thing to think about. He says in verse 14 For many are called, few are chosen. I will admit to you, this is a challenging verse, it's puzzling. What does Jesus mean here? Does he mean that there will be no one or very few people in heaven? Is that what he means? No. Look at verse 10 again. The hall was filled with guests. It will be filled with God's children. Jesus makes that clear. It will be filled. It's going to be a wedding unlike any. Imagine the greatest wedding you've ever been to. This will top it. Princess Diana had millions of people see her wedding. This will be better. It's going to be the feast to end all feasts. But he says, many are called, few are chosen. I don't have all the time to, this could be a whole other sermon right here, just this one verse. But let me at least leave you with some food for thought. Something to think about here on Father's Day. We have to be very careful not to assume that the way one speaker uses a word in Scripture is the way that all of them use a word. Let me just enter that into the conversation here. Can we admit this together? Our language is strange. For lack of a better word, sometimes English can be dumb. There are words that you think will be spelled a certain way, but they're not. There are words, for some reason in our language, that are spelled the same front words and backwards, like race car. I don't know how that happens, but it does. There are also words with strange rules, like I before E, except after C. I still haven't learned that. I'm 30 years old. I tell this to kids all the time at youth group. I'm not embarrassed to say it here. I use the word received probably three times a day when I'm working from home. I use the word received, and I get a kick out of it. I I love it. Every time I watch Microsoft Office switch the I and the E because I keep spelling received wrong. I know the rule, and I still can't do it. My brain and my fingers don't want to do it. And so there's this word call that Jesus uses in verse 14. It's throughout scripture, that word. Did you know in the Oxford Dictionary, call has 14 different definitions? Look it up today. It has 14 different examples of how to use the word call in the Oxford Learning Dictionary. It's bananas. It's crazy. This should help us here. That has 14 definitions. Perhaps, just perhaps, Jesus is not using it in the same way that everybody has used it. Say Paul, for example. Paul in Romans 8.30, I don't have it on the screen, but Romans 8.30, Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the calling leads to justification, that leads to glorification. Paul seems to be using this word, perhaps, in an internal sense. He's referring to the internal work of who? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Only the work that he can do. The one who changes our hearts. This internal call then changes our desires, and it leads to obedience. And that obedience leads to glorification. Jesus, perhaps, however, seems to be using the word maybe a little differently here. Here in Matthew 22, Jesus might be using the word in a more external sense. Perhaps this is helpful to some. Perhaps Jesus is speaking to the external call that goes out to everybody. The summons by God. The call to repent and turn to Jesus. The external call leads to the internal call, and then that internal call is the work that we can't do. The external call, or the invite, goes out to everybody. But only the elect... Students and I counted that word in 2 Timothy the other day. Elect, what does that word mean? I didn't tell them at that time. Elect means chosen. Only the elect, only the chosen will hear the call. Only the chosen will be changed by it. Only the chosen will enter the feast. Our God invites us. He says, as we sang right off the top this morning, he says, come as you are. But I want you to know, Jesus actually wants you to know that you will be changed. There is a cost. There is a cost. So if you can't wait for the day that you get to see the Lord, the maker of literally everything, face to face, he says, come. If you are excited to celebrate Jesus and what he has done, come. If, like me, you long to feast with your heavenly Father, even today on Father's Day, God says, come. Like my aunt's little name cards at Christmas time, God is right now getting your name ready for a card. He is preparing a place and a seat for you at his table. If you are excited for this, as I am, come. There is a seat for you. There's a seat for you at the table with your name on it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear most heavenly and gracious Father, Lord, you are such a good, good Father. You model for us what fatherhood is supposed to be like. A Father who sacrifices for his kids this kind of agape love that our world can't seem to grasp. Love that these elders and priests had lost sight of long ago. They would not have ears to listen, but I pray, Father, that we might. We might have eyes to see and ears to listen to your son. His very words here might be one of his greatest parables right here. Everything that we need to know is right here, stuffed in this parable. This idea of weddings that our culture shakes its finger at today. It's beautiful. Help us see your son, Jesus, Father. I pray that we would see our need for you. No shoes, no shirt is not going to cut it. There will be big problems waiting for us. If, like the guest in this story, we show up without our wedding garment, we will be told, I never knew you, depart from me. And we will be cast into the pits of hell, into darkness, where there will be, as Jesus tells us, gnashing of teeth, much pain, and much crying, much weeping. Another thing our world loves to mock, but it's real. And in some ways, that should scare us. But it should also help us see your goodness, Father, your mercy and your grace. You've made a way. You've supplied everything. Jesus has gotten the garment for us. We don't have to do anything. We can't earn our way to heaven. We're not good enough. Nobody is nobody but your son. I just hope that we would see Jesus and that you would give him to us. For those that perhaps are here this morning or those that listen to this at some point, if they don't know who your son Jesus is, Father, I I pray that they would have eyes to see and ears to listen. They would be able to listen through the world's distractions and noise and see you clearly. We do need you. We sang that today too. And I pray, Father, for the good fathers here on earth that you've given us, the dads that give us a little reflection, a little glimmer of you in the way they love us, sacrifice for us, provide for us, love us, and perhaps for those this morning that, like me, don't have the earthly dad here, or maybe some of you have never known your father, your earthly dad. Maybe he left you when you were young. Maybe he's incarcerated Maybe you have your dad in your life, but your relationship's kind of yucky. I don't know what everyone's walking into today at Father's Day, Father, but I pray that we would see you, our good, good Father, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who loves us and has sent us his Son. You've sacrificed everything when you sent Jesus here, and he came willingly to retrieve righteousness for us through his death and resurrection and ascension. Help us see that this morning, Father, I just pray that you would give us Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray all these things, every one of them, in his garment-securing, righteousness-giving name, we pray these things. Amen.